I think every talk, Dharma talk is a, a talk on compassion. Even though Leela last night spoke about compassion toward our views, uh, I plan to do the same tonight. So this is a sequel, you may say. The title of this evening's talk is Loving the House that Ego Built. And as I did the other night, I would like to start with a double prologue. First one is from a poet named David Budbill, and it's entitled Bugs in a Bowl. Han Shan, that great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl all day, going around, never leaving their bowl. I say, that's right. Every day, climbing back up the steep sides, sliding back, over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or look around. See your fellow bugs. Walk around. Say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. <laughs> the second poem that I'd like to continue with. A little more, bit more serious tone, a poem from Derek Walcott entitled Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. So both of these poems, to me, imply uh, some capacity that we have. And the Buddha suggested we had this capacity. He said, if, I, if this was not possible to do, I would not ask you to do it. But some capacity that we have to come out of the tangle of our, of our inner conflicts and inner world, to move from a very narrow vortex of a kind of self-preoccupation to what some would call the, the wider gravitational field of, 
awakening or the Dharma. And whether you know it or not, at least in my opinion, you have been doing just that on these uh, days of the retreat. Slowly, slowly, moment by moment, coming out of the tangle, making that shift from being just carried along by what was happening when you got here, by the views in your mind and the thoughts and images, to noticing, oh, here I am. And we've used our bodies, we've used everything that's presented itself to help orient us to this unfolding present so that we could begin to have some inclination of what it means to feast on your life. Because we can sense, perhaps, that when, you're, when you are able to stop running up and down the walls of the bowl and look around and say, hey, how are you doing? Nice bowl. When you can do this, you can see that when we are awake, when we're actually alert, and we're not in those moments when we're awake and alert, we're not looking back and we're not looking ahead, we're just here, there's a, there's something, we'll say, enough about it, sufficient, whole, so different than the tangle that we experience when we're, when we're absorbed, when we don't know what's happening, don't know what we're doing. Rumi, who is often quoted, he said, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence. Flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. Why do we stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Because moment by moment, innocently, completely because of this, what the Buddha called avijja or ignorance, not seeing clearly, Moment by moment, because of our conditioning, many cases because of trauma, we inadvertently take birth, literally incarnate into the world of our ideas, our personal stories. And our reaction and reactions to those simple feeling tones, the building blocks of the whole world of of suffering, the whole world of, of dissatisfaction starts in those little building blocks called feeling tones. It's something maybe you got a taste of on the retreat, slowed down just enough to see what happens when there's a pleasant feeling, what your mind does, what happens when there's an unpleasant feeling, what happens when there's a neutral feeling. But these simple feeling tones we described a little bit before, the pleasant followed by liking. Leela used a beautiful example last night of the, of the instantaneous positive association. And then what happens in our mind is it, it produces a little charge. And in our mind says, there's something, 
something a little bit unsettled here, even when it's something pleasant. And that unsettledness spawns, it kind of, the pressure of that spawns a, a kind of search. How can I have more of that feeling that I just thought that gave me such a charge that had such a pleasant association to it? And before you know it, we have, we have set off in a journey, a psychological journey, formed an identity in simple moments, an identity of the, of the seeker. We may have been sitting in a, just in a placid place of complete ease and freedom and some little pleasant feeling, and off, we were off and running. And we, at that moment, we entered a little world of what I call the world of the imagined me. And that world is, is so different from you, so different from who and what you are right here. That world is a completely imaginary world where it is high drama. It is prof it's a profound drama of how I'm going to find the pleasure I want, get rid of the pain I want, find something exciting and interesting because it's neutral and dull. And once we enter into that, our, 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 we're literally born into a thought of ourselves as a separate individual. And, the, and I'm not saying that you're not a separate individual. But there's a difference between the experience of our individuality and the idea of our individuality. Once we enter into the idea of our individuality, the thought about ourselves, then we start thinking about me, my body. And what happens when we think about my body? My body, it's aging. We notice my mind. My mind is moving constantly. And time, we enter into the world of time. Our well-being, as we've spoken a lot on the retreat, starts being tethered to getting from point A to point B. And all that happens in our mind. Now, where is time right now? Where is, that, where is the past now? Where is the future now? Where is even the present now? We begin to just live in this kind of world of, of ideas. And then our, our organism gets freaked out by that. We, we lose contact. And it's never the problem that we haven't gotten what we want or gotten rid of, gotten somebody to act differently than we want them to. It's never, that's never the issue, ultimately. It's that we lose a sense of, of connection. We lose contact with our, with our hearts. So this identity that gets created around these little feeling tones through reactions to, innocent reactions to uh, events, to the way we were spoken to, uh, many different things. The identity that's formed in our mind is, um, it's inherently insecure. It is shaky. It is, it produces a feeling of, 
of queasiness that we often walk. Can you relate to the feeling of queasiness, a little unsettled in your life? Like something's wrong. And often the narrative is, is we've been saying something's wrong with me. And it's not very often, except when we finally stop, it's not very often that we allow ourselves to feel that shakiness, to feel the sense of dis dissatisfaction, anxiety, fear, all the manifestations of having entered into the world of identity, the world of, of me and mine. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a world of, of you. You're here in beautiful, living color. But as Leela was sharing last night, a thought of yourself is not yourself. The idea of yourself is not yourself. The, self, the story of yourself is not yourself. It is a version of you. It is a version of someone. It's a version of someone, not you even. It's a version of someone who doesn't even exist. You exist. You exist right here in this room in full consciousness. But when you experience what that is directly, and maybe you've had more of a taste today as you quieted down a little bit, when you experience that directly, immediately, and you don't, you don't, refer, you don't refer to your personal story to describe yourself, what can you say about yourself? What do you experience? Anybody tell me what they experience, even tonight. What do you experience when you're just here and you're not referring to your memory? <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Is that pleasant or unpleasant? <laughs> what else do you experience? Peace. Pain. What's that? Settled. Hair on your skin. Moment of clarity. Tingliness. See all these. Now we're we're getting closer to reality here. This is a little bit different than than the way you normally think of reality. Normally, we think of our reality as our situation, the way we think about ourselves. And that is a mistake. It's a case of mistaken identity. Because once we enter into that case of mistaken identity, define ourselves by our, our, our narrative that's always based on the past. We'll talk more about that as we go along. We, there's a, there is a tension. There's a tension that builds. We disconnect. And it, we start to feel not exactly whole, not able to just notice that there's pain, there's clarity, there's openness, there's peace, there's presence. And naturally, out of love for ourselves, because of that unsettledness, that anxiety, the I hope this, you can relate to this feeling of, of 
shakiness instead of actually settling into that shakiness, feeling it. Let it, being, let it be met with the grounding um, force of attention, the settling impact of just feeling, oh, this is shakiness here. Instead, innocently, we set out in search and then feel more and more anxious, more and more unsettled. And don't realize that the, the whole process of, of being born into this virtual version of ourselves, is, that that virtual version, that sense of ourselves, that identity is a house of cards. It doesn't ultimately describe anyone who exists. So this is the story of the imagined version of yourself. But again, this is not to, to say that you're that you're not here. <laughs> In fact, it, it's as, oops, as has been said many times, it, it's beautiful to watch the unfolding as you step out of the tangle of fear thinking and you live more in silence and how the lights have come on for most of you, all of you really. And you may not know how much you've been affected because you're in the middle of it. I, even several months into three-month retreats, I would sometimes think, oh, well, nothing's happening. But then when I hit the road, <laughs> it became quite obvious. But Wei Wu Wei reminds us about this psychological version of ourselves when we don't, when we mistake it for the for the fundamental reality of you. He says, why are you so unhappy? Because 99%, 99.9% of everything you do and think is for yourself. And there isn't one. That's Wei Wu Wei. The fact is, the one that you are here cannot be captured by that second-hand version that plays in your mind. It is a, a wonder and a marvel, and, and it's a beautiful thing to be able to reflect, to plan, to vision, to think about ourselves, to think about others. But that... Um, that version that plays through our mind is not a reliable version. It's, a, it's often a distortion. It's often born of all of these different experiences that have happened to us and ways that we've been described and told. They are simply a view. They are a view of ourselves. Therefore, they are not absolute. They're, they're a point of, they're a vantage point. The Buddha called this view Sakaya Ditti self-view, personality view. And this is subsumed under the umbrella of this view. Once we are born into this view, we have fallen into delusion or ignorance. I think what really sparked my interest 
besides hearing a, a fun quote from Audubon, uh, James J. Audubon, I think his, I used to think his name was Henry, but somebody corrected me. But he said something to the effect of, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says, believe the bird. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I think that my own uh, cl increased clarity about the difference between the inherent beauty and the unique way that life, the life moves through each of us, through all the myriad causes and conditions that have formed us to be the way we are in living color, in the, the vividness of our life, and our unique and natural expression that is absolutely unique and precious and fantastic. Every single person here. What really impressed me by that uniqueness and the, the difference between the story that, went, that goes through our mind is watching the uh, evolution or the unfolding of my, uh, of who's now my seven-year-old daughter. Just watching her go from this kind of undifferentiated, just, just being moved by life, born through causes and conditions, all these different contingencies, through no fault of her own. Begin to express without any, without, uh, before self-consciousness, just the, her, her name is Molly, her, what I think of as her molliness, her pure molliness could not manifest or be like anybody else. And I, when I see each of you, I feel the same way about you. I've, I feel that you all have this, this intrinsic molliness to you, whatever your version is. And yet I know as I meet with all of you that I, I feel it, I see it, but the, but the way that you think about yourself, the conviction that you have of your bondage, the conviction you have of your insufficiency. I know in my heart that you're, that you're, um, that you're listening to the, um, the secondhand version and you're missing, or you're not appreciating. I don't, I, I don't wanna, it's not a judgment, it's just I want you to appreciate your version of molliness. And this is, in my view, what practice begins to open for us. the, in some ways, the perfection of, of what you are right here. So if you don't, I'll ask again, if you don't consult your memory, how are you doing, fellow bug? What is your experience on present evidence? Not, not the story version. What's it like? 
What's that content? This is what Rumi said. Out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there's a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. From, from a, an obscure Mahayana Sutra, very simple line that some people's comments reflect very clearly. Having no view of self, one is always peaceful. Now perhaps in these moments where we're just simply together here, and stepping out of the view of ourselves that's based on the past, based on what we want to happen, Perhaps you get a, a taste of the sense of sufficiency, enoughness. <clears throat> Maybe you can sense that it's not easy to put words on what you are, what you experience. I've asked lots of times in uh, Dharma talks to, for people to Say, what can you say from right here, from really right here? Many people say, all they can say is I am, or uh, home, peace, free, or post-nasal drip, <laughs> or fear. But fear without, the, without a story, it's just fear. Fear without being filtered through the, what does it mean about me? It's got some sensations, maybe heavy sensations. But clearly, as you've noticed over the course of these few days, we don't stay here. No, we do stay here. <laughs> we, st we are always here. We've never been anywhere but here. We are it, here-ness and now-ness itself, really. That's a, another thing you could maybe say about yourself. But our mind does not stay here. We don't trust our sense of immediacy and presence. Because what happens? Isn't it true that a thought arises? And if that thought is noticed, we see that it's just a little bubble. It's just an aspect of our awareness. No big deal. But as Dujim Rinpoche says, he says, after your last thought passes and before your next thought arises, is there not a, 
of vivid clarity, kind of bare freshness. He says, well, whole, amazing, this is awareness itself. He says, but you don't stay there. Thought arises, and if you notice it, just another expression of awareness, as I just said. But if it goes unnoticed, what happens? He says it spreads out into ordinary thinking, which he calls the chain of delusion. So it's in these very simple moments, these, all of these thought forms, that we literally take birth into the world of, of me and mine. We're born into that imagined version. And that imagined version, very innocently, it is all about the past. Where is the past now? Well, one thing we can say about the past, as one of my teachers put it, his name is H.W.L. Punja. He said, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on your chest. Of course, our bodies form around these, this case of mistaken identity. The boulders of the past rest on your chest and destroy your life and freedom. Remove them by just noticing these I thoughts. This is what was included in the instructions today. To notice these different stories that our mind plays. As we often introduce thinking, we, we introduce the, partly as a way of making that shift from being just carried along and just assuming these are my thoughts, they're me, and they're, they really capture who I am, we describe them as, as processes. And we talk often about the, what, what are called the top 10 tunes that our mind plays. So the mind plays the, the drama of planning. Some people are dominated by the planning mind. How many here? So just so you know, you're not alone. <laughs> the remembering mind, the rehearsing mind, the judging mind, the comparing mind, the evaluating mind, the criticizing mind, the inflated mind, the deflated mind. We, as we begin to see what our top tunes are, and this is something that is individual and unique, still these thoughts cannot capture what you are. And as Leela was saying last night, some of these are quite useful, quite skillful. They're thoughts that are wholesome and full of love and care and creative. But many of them are just, and it's said we have 65,000 of them every day, and that 90% are repeats from the day before. <laughs> many of them are just reruns, reruns of the same tired story of the, of the insufficient me. or some version of my, and I, I say this with all the love in my heart, some version of my big issue. 
that if only I could solve it, then I could be happy. As perhaps many of you have read, Eckhart Tolle's work. He says, I cannot believe I could ever reach a point where I'm completely free of my problem, someone says. And Eckhart Tolle says, you're right. You can never reach that point because you are at that point right now. There is no salvation in time. You cannot be free in the future. Presence is the key to freedom. So you can only be free now. So we have to make a shift where we can begin to notice these, uh, these versions of ourselves that play in our mind, these versions of the past. I'll just continue reading from H.W. Alpunja. says, the boulders of the past rest on your chest and destroy your life and freedom. Remove them by noticing these I thoughts. Freedom waits, he says, but most are engaged with something else. Don't tie yourself to anything in the past or the future because it will not work. Be attached only to this moment. When you hold to something other than your true nature, you will be disturbed. By holding attachments to transient things like thoughts, by holding attachment to transient things, you declare to yourself that you are not the fullness in which all is. And then Hafiz, once again, in his poem called, Stop Being So Religious. What do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. We have innocently built a shrine to the past. All of our stories and the way we feel have been conditioned out of this simple, simple field of, of sense experience. And it is all these little reactions have spawned this psychological sense of ourselves, this personality view. And ultimately, it, it cannot be secured because it is, especially when it goes unnoticed, it is a disconnect. But what we can do is we can begin to regard this with kindness, with mercy, feel the shakiness that it has produced, feel the anxiety, use the very effects of living in our imagination to bring ourselves back home. It is the road less traveled. We, of course, out of love for ourselves, we want to find something that can bring soothing to these shaky, our shaky bellies and our, our fragile hearts. But the very, uh, the very force 
that actually brings a sense of security is often the last place that we go. That is to, to be mindfully aware, to be heartfully aware. Mind and heart are the same word in Pali and Sanskrit, citta. To be heartfully aware of our predicament. And hopefully we've gently invited you to begin to recognize the world of our moods and emotions, not just to see them from a distance and not just to know what we're thinking about things, but to actually feel that fragility and letting our very vulnerability be the cause of our, of being able to touch that ground of, of presence, to feel the quicksand of, of all of our different ideas. The reason I said the word quicksand is because there's a passage that I love from a woman named Jocelyn King, where she said, I don't understand why people prefer the quicksand of somethingness rather than the firm ground of emptiness. Does any of this make sense? Wonder. Oh, thank you. <laughs> We don't really prefer the quicksand of somethingness. That's all we've really known. And until we realize the stabilizing power of attention, the, 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 the very nature of our consciousness is, is actually stable, immovable, that is actually the very nature of our consciousness is the Buddha, the Buddha of compassion. And freedom, freedom uh, waits till we realize that. But where we begin is begin is noticing, noticing all of the the ways that we take birth in our, the world of identity, all the different stories about ourselves, all the ways that we that our mind. At least, I don't know about yours, but my mind moves into evaluation, constantly measuring. Am I good enough? The Buddha said that we, this Sakaya Ditti makes us fall into what he called mana or conceit, pride. And this pride manifests in our little story. It's very tormenting, in fact. And this little story is, I am less than you, I am greater than you, or I'm equal to you. Atimana, mana, amana. These are the, the three kinds of, of, uh, the compare, of the comparing mind. Three kinds of self-view that we can begin to notice. The comparing mind. Have any of you ever compared yourself to anyone? <laughs> the comparing mind describes someone who doesn't exist. These are all, this is all made up. This is a made up version of you. 
Now, when we are sitting together right now, other than the physical height here, where is there any evidence of anybody being higher, lower, or equal to? You can see it's just a story. We're just here together. And yet our mind will create these divides, and then our body just does not like that at all. Just very tight. Tight with inflation, tight with deflation, tight with the measuring of making sure that I'm equal to. Share a, a fun passage from Ed Brown, the, the Tassajara Bread Book uh, author and also meditation teacher as well, Zen teacher. This is a passage he wrote called Biscuits Beyond Compare. When I first started cooking at Tassajara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe and try variations, but nothing worked. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I had made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick, the other from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick biscuits, you added milk to the mix and then blobbed the dough on sp in spoonfuls onto the pan. You didn't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of cardboard can. You wrapped the can on the corner of the counter and it popped open. Then you twisted the can open more, put the pre-made biscuits on the pan and baked them. I really like those Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> Isn't that what biscuits should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing, the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like. Compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury? Leave it to Beaver? People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, eating one after another, but to me these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. Finally, one day, came a shifting into place, an awakening. Not right compared to what? Oh my word, I'd been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. <laughs> then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. These were weedy, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy reels, as Rilke's sonnet proclaims, they were incomparably alive, present, vibrant, in fact, much more satisfying than any memory. Check it out right now. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating, these moments when you realize your life is just fine as it is, thank you. Only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. Trying to produce a biscuit, a life, with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger, was so frustrating. Then savoring, actually tasting the pre present moment of experience, how much more complex, complex and multifaceted. How unfathomable. A thought, a feeling, ants crawling on the ground in the sunlight. As Zen students, we spent years trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew what a Bisquick Zen student looked like, calm, buoyant, cheerful, energetic, deep, profound. Our motto, as one of my friends says, was looking good. <laughs> We've all done it, tried to attain perfection, tried to look good as a husband, a wife, a parent, 
yes, I have it together. I'm not greedy or jealous or angry. You're the one that does those things, and if you didn't do them first, I wouldn't do them either. <laughs> you started it. Don't peek behind my cover, we say, and if you do, keep it to yourself. Well, to heck with it. I say, wake up and smell the coffee. How about savoring some good old home cooking, the biscuits of today? You can see that when we make that shift from being just absorbed in our comparing mind to noticing, oh, this is the mind that's trying to make Pillsbury biscuits. This is, the com- this is Atimana. This is, this is just conceit. This is just pride. That, that opening is, a, is a, a moment where we can start to write things with great humor, where we find our minds actually funny. This is a wonderful poem from Kabir, where he said, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world I hold to and keep spinning out. I gave up sewn clothes and wore a robe, but I noticed one day that the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap but I still throw it elegantly over my shoulder. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I discover I'm angry a lot. (laughs) I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. (laughs) When the mind wants to break its link with the world, it still holds on to one thing. It's that personality view, Sakaya Ditti. Anonymous poet says, everybody wants to be somebody. Nobody wants to be nobody. But if that somebody could just be nobody, that nobody would really be somebody. (laughs) (laughs) The Hasidic uh, tradition has some fun stories recognizing our, the folly of our personality views, playing themselves out. In one of them, a rabbi in a frenzy of religious passion rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breasts, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. And the cantor of the synagogue, impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joins the rabbi on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. Then the Seamus, the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, look who thinks he's nobody. One of the insidious ways that our, this personality view as it expresses itself in, um, in, as the comparing mind is, is the comparison that Leela spoke about a little bit, comparing ourselves to ideals, to impossible ideals and expectations. This Buddha statue, this is a perfect example of if we compare our posture to this, it's just, it's impossible. 
and yet we, it, it's beautiful that we are idealistic and we have these great ideals, but often create torments in our mind, trying to live up to some uh, ideal standard. And finally, this is the last night, it's just kind of a free-for-all. So I wanted to share a poem, a little passage, again, anonymously written, as far as I know. It's entitled Inner Strength. It speaks of this uh, comparing mind, something that we can begin to notice how it operates in our life, that version of ourselves that can easily torment ourselves, that when noticed can bring a source of, perhaps, a source of spaciousness and humor. This inner strength. It says, if you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, you can eat, some, eat the same food every day and be grateful for it. If you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time. If you can overlook when people take things out on you when through no fault of yours something goes wrong. If you can take criticism and blame without resentment. If you can face the world without lies and conceit. If you can conquer tension without medical help. If you can relax without alcohol if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all these things, then you are probably the family dog. So just notice whatever the reverberation of this, whatever feeling, whatever reaction may be happening right now in the room. Just notice, notice it just for what it is. See if you can see the difference between just what it is that's happening and what it means about you. If you can hear it, not with what you are going to do with it, how it's going to help you when you go home, which is another way that we enter into the world of our personality view, is that world of time. Can you just hear it and feel whatever you feel? Laugh if you laugh and get irritated if you get irritated. So life can be as complex as it is. It can be quite simple because it really is just these unfolding moments. Because every time, if we get used to the idea of being right where we are and begin to notice the way our mind takes birth into the, the kinds of dramas that it does. And today I was thinking about my time at IMS over the last, you know, I did a lot of my practice here in the 80s. And on one retreat, because not only do we create a version of ourselves in our mind as above, below, and equal, but we also create a version of ourselves trying to get somewhere, that state of becoming, that's often tethered to some kind of 
a pleasurable desire, some fulfilling some kind of desire. And there was a time, as the story goes, that there was a yogi here on the retreat center, on the retreat. Some of you may have heard this story before. Sharon tells it a lot. But there was a yogi who, right in the middle of a three-month retreat, two months into the three-month retreat, had a thought that had a very pleasant association to it. It was a thought of watching a football game. A desire, a, the, they knew that the annual game with their favorite team was happening on that day, I think sometime around Thanksgiving. And the, because that produced that little thing in the brain, a pleasant sensation, it immediately started this kind of compulsion in the person's mind to, uh, to try to go watch that game. And the, the yogi was somewhat aware of this, but the compulsion was so strong that the yogi started taking, took it to the interviews and started telling the teacher that, uh, that they wanted to go watch this game. And I think it may have been a workable situation, just working with it as the wanting mind, until that yogi got a note from another yogi saying, I'll drive you. <laughs> and that just set off um, uh, further what the Buddha called papancha, or proliferation. Proliferation is the, is the effusion of thoughts and fantasies that completely obliterate our sensitivity to the present moment to, and take us into worlds beyond. So it turns out that the yogi who offered the ride had, was hanging out at the retreat center and not really practicing because they had a partner who had some medical problems and so they needed to um, attend to that and they overheard the interview and wrote the yogi a note. And, Finally, the yogi went and, uh, to watch this game, and it turns out they went 40 miles to Amherst, rented a motel room <laughs> to watch this game on, in the comfort of quiet and on a television. And the, the team that the yogi was rooting for lost the game. So that, per, that, that yogi had been born into that drama. See, once we're born into it and it's not really attended to very carefully, we're literally carried along until that point where that life ends, we get what we want, and then a new life begins. What's the new life? This, this is what's called samsara, the cycle of existence. The new life is, hmm, this feels really strange. I'm kind of embarrassed, very self-conscious about having driven 45 miles to watch a football game. And that embarrassment, that, that dissatisfaction that arises after being carried along by some kind of addiction is we're back at that, that shakiness again. We're back at that queasiness. And we don't often just feel the queasiness. Let it become the cause of our, our presence. What do we normally do? We generate 
another desire, ceaselessly feeding that wanting mind, incarnating into that, um, those dramas. Turns out that yogi was moi. <laughs> Almost did it today. So when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, was able to make that shift out of the tangle of all the dramas that Mara was playing through his mind, all the all the temptations and impulses, all the ways that moment by moment we take birth in these little dramas and kind of have to live them out one after another. He let out a song after his awakening. and In his song he said, Through many births in the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of this house. Dukkha, or stress, suffering, is birth again and again. Oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build another house again. Your, your, uh, your rafters have been broken, the ridge pole destroyed, a mind gone to the unconditioned, to cravings, cessation. It has come. So that solved his issue. <laughs> but he then, he turned the wheel of the Dharma and remembering that he saw that there were those with just a little dust on their eyes who if turned back to themselves who made that shift themselves from being caught in that case of mistaken identity to be able to see through that self-illusion, to just simply see that whatever you think you are is, is that, that one who you imagine yourself to be is just, just a story. When we see through that self-illusion, and, and I suggest that maybe you even felt through it even this evening sitting here, where you stepped out of your personal story for a moment, and you, like Rumi said, you lived in silence for a little bit, and you flowed down and down, and, and your view widened, and ever-widening rings of being, you looked around, and saw, you felt your fellow bugs. that you saw through the illusion of self, and so consequently, you saw through the illusion of others or separateness. Perhaps you can sense in the, in the silence that intimate connection that we have with all things. It's not just an exotic experience, but it's real. It's the truth. And it's here.
as Nisargadatta put it, he says, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between these two, my life flows. And Kalu Rinpoche, the Tibetan teacher, said, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. And when you understand this, you will see that you are nothing. But being nothing, you are everything. That is all. I'd like to close with a, another Rumi poem. It's called Tending Two Shops. Don't run around this world looking for a hole to hide in. There are wild beasts in every cave. If you live with mice, the cat claws will find you. The only rest comes when you're alone with the divine. Live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere, and eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops, and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap getting always smaller, checkmate this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. We'll just remain quiet for a moment. No need to move. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.